1: and welcome back to truth and justice this is your friday follow-up for episode number 524 our interview with tim clementi where he gave us his analysis of jesse miss kelly's confessions clementi's interview i'm not gonna lie threw me for a loop i think it threw a lot of people for a loop uh many people on the what's known as the air quote supporter side the people that believe the west memphis three are innocent We're expecting Tim Clemente to come in and blow Miss Kelly's confessions out of the water, and the the people in the air quote non side kind of preemptively were expecting him to just follow along the lines of his brother Jim Clemente, who had given analysis on his podcast and the other experts, and I think all of us were surprised. Uh, For me, it's definitely caused me to take a little bit deeper look into the confessions, and it has affected our production schedule. So before we get started today, I wanted to let you guys know what's going on. So this past weekend, as you guys know, we were at CrimeCon, and during CrimeCon, we had a live podcast recording session. That recording session was intended to be this week's Friday follow-up. We kind of assumed, again, ahead of the game, that Clementi would probably agree with me, and the other experts that have looked at the case or some of the other experts, and we would pretty much be done with Jesse Ms. Kelly's confession. But as you all heard, that's not exactly what happened, and it's required us to take a little deeper look. Also, it generated a lot more social media than we expected as far as uh, questions and comments. So Mike and I decided just this morning that the episode that we had planned for next week's uh, this week's the sunday's main episode wouldn't be fitting and so we need to back up a little bit and and dig a little deeper into Jesse Miss Kelly and also we didn't want to miss out on this friday follow up where you guys had a lot of questions and comments about Tim's interview so this is what's going to happen we're going to do a normal friday follow up today we're going to go through your questions comments and and concerns about this past week's episode the interview And then on Sunday, we're going to use the live at CrimeCon recording as our main episode. Uh, Just so you're aware, what we did, it was there was about I don't know two hundred fifty, three hundred people in the room, and we did an AMA, Ask Me Anything, Q and A session. So we've got listeners asking a lot of questions about a lot of our different cases. Hopefully, it'll be interesting to you guys. But uh, it, it's really kind of what the only option we were left with at this point because, again, we had another episode prepared, but that episode isn't going to fit in with uh, our current developments. So part of it is we don't want to lose that recording. We thought it was an interesting live podcast recording. And secondly, to be honest, we just need a little bit of time to kind of regroup and start doing research for um, next week's episode to dig a little deeper into Miss Kelly's Confessions. So that's what's going to happen, and for now, we'll go ahead and get started with this week's Friday follow-up right after a quick break. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Harry's Razors. This week at CrimeCon, Mike and I had to take a lot of pictures with a lot of people, Uh, and it was really cool to meet all the fans but I don't think I've ever been more thankful for my Harry's razor. Yeah, a lot of those people were getting real close with those cameras for those selfies. Yeah, they sure were, and it was nice to have a clean, close shave with no razor burn, and that's what I love about Harry's razors. I always get a very precise shave, a very comfortable shave, and as I've mentioned many times before, their blades seem to last forever. You can shave multiple times with one blade, and it still stays sharp for multiple shaves. And Harry's has a special offer for our listeners. They stand behind the quality of their blades, but they know that just switching razors isn't an easy decision. So they created a trial offer just for you. And you can claim yours by going to harrys.com justice. So here's the deal. Harry's founders were fed up with overpaying for expensive razors with unnecessary features. They knew that a great shave comes down to great blades. Blades that are made with sharp, durable steel that lasts. And that's why they bought a factory that's been making some of the highest quality blades in the world for over 95 years. And by selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's can offer their blades at a price much lower than the leading brand. Just two bucks a blade compared to four or more with the other blades. And they have a quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let Harry's know within 30 days and they'll give you a full refund. So here's the details of that trial offer. They're going to give you a $13 value trial set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Now listen up, because this is costing you nothing. When you try Harry's for free, they're going to give you a weighted ergonomic handle, a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich, lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. And you're going to get all of that for free. So there's no reason not to try Harry's out. And listeners of my show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com justice. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash justice to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. One more time, that's harrys.com slash justice for a free trial set.
0: Okay, Bob, let's get started with the questions. I got one for you before we get into the listener stuff too. Okay. So Tim did his analysis and disagreed with you, and I think that says a
1: lot about the way we present our cases. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I hope that it was an eye-opener for a lot of listeners. I read a lot of social media comments this week, and I think some people were surprised that we aired the interview. But this is what we're trying to do. It just so happens that a lot of experts, I tend to have the same opinion of a lot of experts, but in this case, I wouldn't so much say that Tim completely disagreed with me, but Tim definitely didn't feel as strongly about the interview as I did. And really, it still kind of feels that way, but again, I want to take another look now. Uh, that I've I've seen someone else's opinion that kind of differs from mine. In my opinion, the interview was inexcusable, and I made that very clear on the podcast that that was my opinion. When we broke it down in episode 523, uh, I thought the tactics, the leading questions, the suggestions were just absolutely inexcusable. I was pretty hard on Ridge and Gitchell. At this point, I still kind of maintain that, but I but I will I will put that with the caveat that we need to dig deeper. Tim made some good points. One being that maybe they were trying to get him re- to repeat something. That he already said. Now, in in my opinion, if he had just actually already said it, then why didn't he remember it right afterwards when he did this interview? But we've got a lot to cover. But uh, I hope people realize that you know there was no there was no chance. I know there were a few comments suggesting that uh, you know from some non supporters that were saying that I'm surprised he even aired it, and then and then other people kind of asking you know on the supporter side why would you air that it disagrees with you. And that's why, you know, we brought Tim on to be an expert and give his opinion, and he gave it, and I want you to hear it. It's the same reason why we're still asking for anyone who has the opposing viewpoint to come on the show and explain it. And, I'm, you know, like I said before, we're not looking for a debate or an argument. It's just that most of the opinions in this case come from a place of factuality. I mean, there are a few people out there that try to twist things, but for the most part, people are pointing to specific pieces of evidence, and it's accurate, and they're correct. And so am I. It's the analysis or the weight that we put on to those pieces of evidence and our opinions where we conflict. So I can present the other side. I, I try to put in both sides, but of course, I have an opinion of, of every piece of evidence we put out there, and, and I've made my opinion very well known, and it would be kind of disingenuous for me to you know, put out, well, it would sound something like, so-and-so says that this happened, so they must be guilty. And I know the listeners would see right through that because I'm I'm sure they would be, they would know that I don't believe that. So it's the same reason we're trying to get somebody to come on to present that opposing viewpoint, have a discussion about it, to make sure everyone is well informed, not necessarily of the facts. And of course, you know, we haven't gotten all the facts out and and we likely won't get all of the facts. I mean, there's we've been doing this podcast now in this case for, what, six, seven months. Yeah, it's, we're like 50 hours into this and it, we're moving at a, it feels like a snail's pace, and there's still a lot of stuff we haven't covered yet. So there's a lot out there. But anyway, I, I hope that, that was um, this episode was eye-opening for people that maybe think that we're trying to come at this from a biased perspective. Uh, I was certainly surprised by Tim's analysis, but you know, that's his analysis, and I want you to hear it. Okay, and Ellen says to us, so many people question the idea that Tim Clemente
0: had no prior knowledge of this case. I think it's plausible as I had no knowledge and I'm a true crime junkie. But I want a better explanation for him not knowing anything. Does he not listen to his brother's podcast?
1: No, I actually I don't think that he does. You know, we got the chance to talk to Tim a little bit at CrimeCon. Uh and no, and you know, it's I mean, I guess you could not be- believe him, but the fact that he didn't take a side, you know, if you if you really listen to what he was saying, he kinda of punted, and not in a bad way, but just to say that he doesn't have enough information to know one way or another, just listening to the interview. As he said, if you were just dealing with a normal adult interview, it was an atrocious interview the way they they conducted themselves. But him, uh, Jesse, being being young and more impressionable, and he doesn't know if he had already told them things in the pre interview. He doesn't know if there were any factual errors. And you know, we talked a little bit about it, but only a few. No, I don't think I, I'm I'm certain of it that he doesn't know anything about the case because when I first approached him to the interview, you know, he said, "Well, I don't really know anything about that case. I don't know if I would be the best person for you to talk to." And I told him, that's perfect. I don't. W- I want somebody that doesn't know anything about the case. So um, I think we would have heard a much different opinion, you know, one way or the other, if he did know anything about the case. Joe says, what do you think about Tim's comparison between Jesse and a six-year-old? Well, I kind of thought when I was listening back to the interview that we kind of went too far down that path, you know, and and some of that may be my fault. You know, I was, as, as I do in interviews, if you ever listen back to them, I try to leave more time for the person interviewing to talk and and not put too much of my own speaking in there because you're listening in to hear them speak. So I tried to, you know, summarily give him the analysis from Dr. Wilkins where he said that, you know, he gave his IQ scores and said that, you know, he functions in, in his, I believe Dr. Wilkins put it that the way he perceives reality is that of a six or seven-year-old. Tim kind of ran with that to say that basically they were interviewing a six or seven-year-old, and I, I don't think that that's particularly accurate. You know his his i q score was certainly lower he's definitely not the the most intelligent person you know he, he has some some cognitive disability for sure, but he does also have seventeen almost eighteen years of life experience, but at the same time the way he perceives reality is down to the six or seven year old so it's a lot more complex than he to say that he just had the the quote mentality of a six or seven year old it was just in certain aspects so yeah, and I and I think that I don't know if that how much that swayed Tim's opinion. Once he knew that, he you know, he had said that he kind of already thought that, you know, he kind of seemed like he was first grade level when he was listening to him speak. So I I don't know. But I, I definitely think it's not quite accurate to say that, you know, Jesse should be compared to a six or seven year old. Uh and again, that may be my fault by the way that I worded that to Tim when I was explaining to him when he said he didn't know what his mental capacity actually was. Uh I may not have worded that properly, but I yeah I, d- I definitely don't think that it's fair to just assume that Jesse all around has the mental ability of a six or seven year old because again he has seventeen to eighteen years of life experience. I mean he's had sex at this point in his life. He's drank alcohol at this point in his life. He's uh, he's just, he's been through a lot. And and th- this is a sidebar, and I apologize for 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 throwing this in here. Has nothing to do with that question. I just remembered I wanted to clear something up last week about Jesse in episode five twenty three. Uh, I had mentioned that Jesse babysat a lot of kids and even babysat David Jacoby's kids. I did want to clarify that a little further because uh, someone had pointed out to me that, that that's not exactly accurate. So David didn't particularly or personally know Jesse. He used to go to an auction on the weekends with his daughter. And Jesse oftentimes would go to those auctions and people would pay him $5 to to watch a lot of people's kids out in the parking lot while they were going into the auction and David had done that before he told me that he had left his daughter with Jesse a couple of times and paid him 5 bucks to watch his daughter along with several other kids so he didn't really have a personal relationship with Jesse he wasn't having Jesse come to his house and babysit all the kids or anything like that it was just you know he was he liked to go to the auction in order to make a little bit of extra money to help babysit and that kind of says
0: that his responsibilities as a babysitter at the auction aren't quite the same as if you were like watching kids overnight or something like that. Right, yeah. Okay, round 2. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Gretchen says, after hearing Tim's feedback, does it sway you at all as far as Jesse's interview and the possibility that there may be some truth to what Jesse was saying
1: or no? Yeah, it, it has. I mean, I haven't necessarily changed my opinion. Because, you know, Tim is one expert of many that have analyzed this case. Um, So just not just solely based on his his analysis, but he made some points that have have certainly, number one, given me pause and caused me to want to go back and dig further. Um, You know, the, the big one being, were they trying to get Jesse to repeat things that he had already said? Because that's not entirely uncommon. You know, that was the the making a murderer case with Brendan Dassey. Uh, and I don't know this to be fact, but I other analysis that I've heard on other podcasts where they've talked about it, you know, there was an instance in that interview where uh, they were the police were trying to get him to say that Teresa Halbach was shot in the head. And I said, so how, how'd she die? They choked her. They, they slit her throat. They did that. You know, he's saying all these things that are wrong. And then finally the cop says, what happened to her head? And they, he said, they cut her hair. They pulled her hair out. And then finally he says, who shot her in the head? And it was you know obviously awful it was it was it was on the the documentary it was terrible. I was coming out of my seat. It was terrible, but uh and again, I don't know this to be true, but one of the podcasts I'd listened to that had dug a little deeper into it had found that he had supposedly in the pre interview told them that Stephen Avery shot Teresa Halbach in the head, and so then they turn the recorder on and start recording. And they say, how did she die? And he's talking about, you know, cutting her throat and strangling her. And they say, what happened to the head? And he's saying, cut the hair. And the the police officer was supposedly, allegedly, according to what I'd heard, frustrated because he had already told them that he shot her in the head and they couldn't get him to repeat that. So that certainly gives me some pause. But at the same time, I still have concerns with that because the unrecorded pre-interview Very well, may have, and I've started to look at it, but I've intentionally not not dug too deeply into that yet because I want to cover it next week with fresh eyes. But even if let's say that Jesse did give some details during the pre-interview that was unrecorded, so we just have Ridge and Gitchell's notes on that is all we'll have, Uh, no no transcript. But we've heard Ridge and Gitchell's interview techniques already, not just with Jesse, but also with Aaron Hutchison. So because they may have. Gotten him to say in the pre interview that Chris Byers' genitals were cut, as an example, if that's in there. I don't think that it is, but uh, say they had gotten him to say that in the pre interview. We just have the notes without the recording. How do we know that they didn't do the exact same thing they did during the interview? How do we knew, know that they didn't do the exact same thing that they did during Aaron Hutchison's interview with constantly suggesting the answers? It would be a big contrast to me to think that they did a proper interrogation off the record without the recorder on. And then when they turn the recorder on, which now becomes public record, then they decide to use these tactics of interrupting, suggesting, not accepting the right answers, or excuse me, not accepting what they perceive to be the wrong answers and keep pushing until they get the right answer. And along those lines, I spoke with Jason Baldwin over the weekend after he had heard the interview. And eventually, you guys are gonna, pretty soon probably, you guys are gonna hear the interview that I've already recorded with him. And he pointed this out then in in his own experience with these detectives interviewing, and he, he said that they wouldn't accept the truth and he made a really good point that seems obvious, but I've never thought about it this way and he said, "You understand that before any false confession first comes the truth, so you know nobody just comes in, you never see in a false confession somebody come in and say, "I want to confess," and they give all the details of the crime. It's always they come in and and we're talking about if this is a true false confession or any true false confession that they come in first and tell the truth and the officers refuse to accept it. So what happens next depends on how that interviewee, how that suspect or subject reacts to the officers refusing to accept their truth. Uh, in Jason's case, he was you know, certainly stronger mentally. And, and, and this would this would be true. I hope people would agree. Whether you believe he's innocent or guilty, he was not going to fall for that. You know, that's why there's nothing out there. There's no recorded interviews from Jason out there. The police got nowhere with him because he told them he didn't know anything about it. As he says, that was the truth. And they continually told him, no, that's not the truth. We want something else. If we look at it from the perspective of someone who is actually innocent, that's a hell of a spot to be in. You're telling this authority figure, the police officer that's controlling your life at that moment repeatedly that you don't know what happened. And they're continually telling you, you are not getting out of here until you tell me something different than what you're telling me. And if what you're telling them is the truth, that's really hard to deal with. I feel like really quick. I feel
0: like that happens in a lot of interrogations, even if they don't have anything on somebody at all. So like we remember when we did the uh, the uh, what's his name? Holland and Chris Morgan and Chris Brian Morgan, Holland. that interview. I mean, it was confess 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 Mm -hmm. and i think i mean some other stuff we were looking at earlier today kind of brought that into my mind too you're just it's almost standard procedure for them to put pressure on somebody who they may even they don't know much about in the first place and they just want to see what happens and then that snowballs into them maybe confessing just to please them or what
1: whatever yeah you're you're exactly right and it's and, again, it seems elementary, but when you really think about it, it's, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. Because, like I said, we were, we're, we're um, screening another case this morning before we got into doing this, is what Mike's referring to there. Same thing. We're watching these interrogation videos, and the same thing's happening. They just continually say, I don't know anything about this. The police continually tell them, that's not true. We want the truth. This particular person never confessed. But what you did see is a story changing a little bit over yeah. time. Because they're insisting on more details when the person's telling them, I don't have any more details, and so they insist on more. Uh, and it is kind of standard procedure, but the the issue is if you consider, I think that using that tactic and the read technique is all designed to get a guilty person to confess. Right. And I don't think that what we consider is, what effect will that have on an innocent person? You know, and Again, somebody like Jason, who has a much higher IQ, sharp guy, strong-willed, Damien, sharp guy, strong-willed. They changed their stories. They gave more detail. I don't think Jason necessarily did, but we'll get into him later. But they never said, I had anything to do with this. But you use the example of uh, Brian Holland and Chris Morgan. Yeah. What happened there? For hours and hours and hours, they insisted. They didn't know what, was, what happened. They know nothing about this crime. And ultimately it ended with Chris Morgan standing up on a chair saying, fine, maybe I did it. Maybe I killed those boys and Effed him up the up the ass, you know, and and of course that was not a confession, but they tried to use it as one. The Oceanside PD and West Memphis PD tried to use that as a confession, and we all know from watching it that wasn't a confession. It wasn't a confession at all. He's just frustrated when you tell somebody repeatedly, "I don't know anything about this," and then you get repeatedly told, "Yes, you do," and it just continues and continues and continues. Someone who doesn't maybe have the strongest will, and again. 25% of DNA-proven wrongful convictions, the people confessed to a crime they didn't commit. Happens all the time. So, uh, you know, and the, the question was there, uh, did, it, did it give me pause or change my opinion? Like I said, to go back to that question, it's definitely caused me to want to look deeper. But I just have this kind of caveat in my mind is, you know, let's say, and again, I have not read them. So I don't know what they say. I've scanned them a little bit. Uh, a listener sent them to me, and I started to look, and thought, I thought, I'm just, i not ready to get that deep yet. You know, If they wrote details, well, he told us this, he told us this, he told us this. At this point, my opinion of Ridge and Gitchell is that they're dishonest cops, and that's not maybe a popular opinion, and maybe I'm being too hard on them, but just listening to the way they conducted. Forget about Jesse Miss Kelly and look at Aaron Hutchison. The way they conducted that, th- that interview, those interviews with Hutchison, a little 8-year-old boy, I think that speaks volume to their character and procedure, my personal opinion.
0: As a follow-up to that, while we're on the topic of the honesty of law enforcement, what's up with the case number for the West Memphis
1: Three being 666? Yeah, we've been meaning to get to this. I think we talked about it months ago, but uh, when people heard the interview with Jesse Ms. Kelly, a lot of people were asking again about it. What a coincidence. So this is a perfect example. The, the case number for this was, you know, three five. Zero six six six, and Getchell I think was asked about it, and he said it's you know the numbers are sequential. That was just coincidence. But then reports have been found after the fact. One one in particular I believe was written by Brian Ridge months after the fact, uh, or it wasn't months after the fact. It was a few days or weeks after the fact. The case number was in the five hundreds. Mm-hmm. So it's just another example of that. You know they think this is this big satanic murder. They assign a case number six six six. And then they lie and say that that was a coincidence when it was not sequential. They just intentionally assigned it that number. That is ridiculous. Right? (laughs) Yeah. And then people will still say that this case had nothing to do with satanic panic. All
0: right. Abby has two questions. First, did Tib Clemente say whether or not he would even interview Jesse as a witness? He said in an earlier episode he wouldn't even interview children or someone who had similar mental capacity.
1: So I didn't specifically ask him if he would have interviewed Jesse, but if you were listening closely to both interviews, you're right. He did in the in the previous interview. He said I wouldn't interview anyone, just like she said, with a diminished mental capacity or a child, because that wouldn't be effective because they're so easily the suggestibility factor and their desire to please authority. In this interview. You know, he was, if you listen closely, he puts a lot of caveats in there. You know, he's just not willing to commit to something if he doesn't have all the facts, which I respect very much. Uh, But he did say something along the lines of, I don't know, I've never interviewed a six-year-old for a murder. And so I think that was kind of a callback to what he had said in the previous episode, that, you know, this is, he has a hard time analyzing this because it's out of the ordinary. Because in, in his opinion, from what he said previously, he wouldn't have conducted this interview. Once you realize you have someone that is functioning at that level and is that easily is susceptible to suggestibility on that level, you're not going to get have an effective interview because even if they do know the facts, you could easily sway them away from it if you just suggest anything to them.
0: Her next question is: Were the detectives aware of Jesse's mental capacity before the interview?
1: I don't think so, not officially. I mean, they I don't think they were reviewing IQ tests or giving him anything like that. But part of the training. Of any investigator that conducts an interview, I was trained this way as well, is to assess the subject that you're interviewing in the pre-interview. It's also part of the read technique. You know, the 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 beginning part of that is not interrogation, it's interview. And you're doing a lot of things. You're you're number one, you're you're assessing a baseline for physical behavior, for nonverbal communication skills, things to look for. You're also assessing their suggestibility factors, you're also assessing their mental abilities. So that's part of the process. So no in the way that they didn't have a report saying this guy has an IQ of 72 or whatever, but yes in the way that they should have been making those assessments along the way. And you've heard the interviews. I don't think anybody could listen to that and come to any other conclusion than he's not functioning at a very high level.
0: Right. I mean, there's just a plethora of things, right? Like he could be on drugs. He could be an alcoholic. I mean, I just... Not necessarily his his mental abilities as much as... It just could be a couple of different things. When you meet somebody for the first time, you probably aren't sure. You know there's something off, but you're not sure what exactly it is.
1: Right. But remember, too, they're also trained to pick up on signs of intoxication and things like that Mm -hmm. as part of their basic officer training. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. It could be a lot of different things. And as a follow-up to that, it just reminded me, when you said drugs and alcohol, uh, another argument people have made for Jesse not having all of the information right about the case, about the actual crime scene and the murders, is that in his follow-up interviews, he said, you know, in, in his his later confessions after trial, uh, I believe he says that he was drinking all day. Uh, he was drinking whiskey all day. And so that's been said that well, maybe he doesn't remember anything because he was drunk at the time. Sure, But I mean, he didn't say that in this interview, but he did say that later. Okay,
0: this has been some pretty good discussion. Let's take a quick break here from our sponsors and we'll get back into it. no purchase necessary. Void were
1: prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Okay. We also had some listener discussion about the tip that Jesse called in that led him to his interview with police in the first place. And they're talking about the Tracy Laxton tip. Bob, are you going to get into that anymore?
1: Yes, we will dig deeper into that as we move along. Uh, That's part of what we were going to cover next week that we've had kind of push back because we need to, dig a little deeper into the confession, but we will be expanding upon the Tracy Laxton tip. Okay, and Joe
0: writes to us, Jesse talked to at least one person from the search who saw the crime scene. There was news reports and rampant town rumors. They could not find any physical evidence of his presence at the crime scene. He did not prove he was there. Why didn't they take him to the crime scene to look for evidence?
1: All I can give you is my opinion, and first of all, I don't know that they didn't. Maybe they did, but there's no record of it. But personally, I think I think Gitchell, especially in the follow up interview, really showed his hand that they didn't want any more information from Jesse. And, and that's what's so frustrating to me. And again, I, this is my opinion. And, and some people are upset about it, but I, I'm just really disgusted about the way this was handled. You know, it was the perfect example was when Gitchell's asking him about the bindings. And Jesse says, you know, they were tied up. It was just their hands or well, what they tie him up with. It was a rope or well, what kind of rope. It was a brown rope. Gary Gitchell did not want the truth. Imagine if he was actually believing that Jesse was there and looking for the truth, then how do you leave that there? He says they were tied up with a brown rope. So you say, okay, you know, some listeners had pointed out that there was there was a rope found somewhere on the crime scene. Uh, maybe they tied him up with that at one point. Well, we don't know because Gitchell didn't ask him any further. He should have said, okay, well, how big was the rope? Was it a thick rope? Was it a thin rope? Where did the rope come from? Did somebody bring the rope? How did it get there? All these, these questions. Th- that's how you do an interview when you're actually trying to draw information out of the person you're interviewing. And go back and don't take my word for that. Go back and listen to the, it's the shorter one, the 12-minute, the follow-up interview after they talk to the prosecutor and listen to that exchange. As soon as he said it was a brown rope, Gary says, okay, and moves on. He doesn't want to know any more information. As I said on the show, I believe Gitchell was smart enough to know that Jesse never says, I don't know. He always just gives him some kind of an answer. If they suggest it to him, he'll repeat it back to him. If they don't, he'll guess. And so he didn't want to ask him, where did the rope come from? Because he knew that the boys were tied up with shoelaces, not brown rope. So he moves away from it, which is the exact wrong thing to do. And that exchange right there, in my opinion, shows their hand that they knew that Jesse didn't actually know anything about that crime scene, or they would have asked him to further expand upon that, but he was going the wrong way, and so they moved away from it and listen back through that interview. it happens repeatedly every time he's going the wrong direction, telling them something that doesn't jive with the crime scene that they, or their own theory on the case, instead of having him expand on it, they cut, change the subject.
0: My next question from a listener, Tiffany uh, definitely follows up to that, and like you said. Uh, things that don't fit their narrative they avoid things that do fit their narrative they they focus on and and Tiffany here was mentioning uh his multiple account Jesse's multiple accounts of the boys being raped, which we know uh now in hindsight that that the autopsy show autopsies showed that they weren't, but at the time detectives thought they were so Tiffany wants to know why the interview wasn't thrown out
1: It's because in our criminal justice system the prosecutor is the gatekeeper of the evidence. And then furthermore, it becomes then the judge. But in the initial stages, when they're trying to file an arrest warrant and file charges, or the prosecutor's going to file charges, it's his or her job to evaluate the evidence that the police are giving them and decide if there is probable cause to make a case to file the charges. And in this case, Fogelman was aware of some problems. When they gave him the first interview, He's the one that said you need to go back because he's got some of these issues wrong. The fact that the follow-up interview, he thought, oh, well, it's all better now. You know, he's changed his time and and he's still got the bindings wrong, uh, but he got the ears right now. So we'll go ahead and file the charges. It should have been thrown out. And then furthermore, Judge Burnett, and again, this is an uh, opinion. So Burnett looked over the confession and determined that it was a credible confession. Yeah, that's, that's his prerogative of the, as the judge to do that. Personally, I think it's just the fact that when, when Tim Clemente listened to it, he couldn't say that. You know, and, and he doesn't know about all the factual errors in there. But as as he said at the end, I think he said at the end of the interview, he can see some points for innocence, he can see some points for guilt, uh, but at the end of the day, there's no reasonable doubt for him. Well, Burnett had the facts, you know, and, and he had experts telling him that this had all the signs of a false confession. And he allowed it. So the defense tried to get it thrown out. But at the end of the day, it's up to the prosecutor if he wants to use it. And it's up to the judge to decide if he can. And both of those happened. All right.
0: This one's from Emmy. One of the main arguments I see that Jesse was telling the truth is the fact that he didn't just confess once but multiple times. Example, to his lawyer, to people in prison. But
1: does anyone know if there's documented evidence of other confessions or is it just rumors? There is documented evidence. As a matter of fact, if you go on to Callahan's. Under Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly Jr., a lot of them are up there. There's, uh, I believe, there's a recording of what's known as the Bible confession, which that was the one that after he was convicted, where you, you can hear his lawyer saying, "I'm advising you not to do this," and Jesse says, "I'm going to do it anyway. I just want to make this right." And it it's, it's recorded. Some of it's hearsay. I think we talked a little bit about this last week, and some of it is hearsay where you know the officers that were in the car with Jesse after the trial say that he confessed to them. I'm not. Saying that he didn't. As a matter of fact, I think he probably did, but it's it's technically hearsay because there's no no recording of it or anything like that. So yeah, a lot of it is is documented.
0: Okay, and then can we clear something up about the crime scene area regarding a path to the interstate? In crime scene maps, there doesn't seem to be a path, and one listener pointed out that there actually was a path to the interstate.
1: Yeah, so that that seems to be an error on my part. It wasn't something that I just missed. It just it took a little digging deeper. So I was working off of crime scene photos, aerial photos, where you can clearly see there's three paths that converge on each other all from the west side to go from the pipe bridge up by Blue Beacon over by Love's Truck Stop all to the west and then converge together right at the crime scene. So you can see that in those photos. And then also there's a crime scene drawing. I believe Detective Durham made the drawing. Uh, but but he draws the whole scene in the creek and the woods and the houses and the pipe. And he shows those same paths that we see in the aerial videos. It doesn't show any path going to the interstate. So that's why I said there's no path going to the interstate. Uh, but I did have one listener that that dug in a little deeper. And there's another crime scene drawing. And I, I think it was when they went back to do luminol testing, maybe days later. But whatever it was, if you it's hard to read, it's not it's it's done very it's not done very neatly. Um so it's it's difficult to read what's written on there. Uh, as a matter of fact, I missed it the first time, but then she had sent it, so I dug, or excuse me, I, I looked closer and it did indicate that there was a path going off the east side of the bank up by where Michael Moore's body was headed to the interstate. She did also send a picture. I don't know if it was pulled off a website somewhere or anything that indicated the path that goes to the interstate. It is there. I'm not saying it's not there, but it's super, it's not a defined path like what you see on the west side, where it's just, you know, it's through the middle of the weeds. These paths are down to dirt. They're walked all the time. Uh, On the east side, it basically just showed a grassy area on the east side of the woods, uh, and with an arrow indicating that it goes out towards the interstate. Most certainly, there was a way to walk from the interstate down the east side of the, the creek and down to the crime scene. You know, they came from supposedly, according to Jesse's interviews and confessions, they all came from the West, from the Blue Beacon side. And so and the boys, we know came from the pipe. So if they used that path, they would have went past the woods, past the creek, came down the east side of the creek to get into the woods on this path. The boys would have been on the opposite side. But it just depends on what version of Jesse's story we're looking at because, you know, later on it became that they were playing in the water, Jesse and Jason, and and doing some things in the water. And so it wouldn't matter what side it was on. But at the end of the day, yes, there I was incorrect in saying there was no path to the interstate. It just wasn't as defined. You can't see it in the aerial photos, and it's not on the crime scene drawing, but there was a path of some sorts on the east side of the creek that did go out towards the interstate.
0: Okay, real quick before we close things up, can you specifically
1: point out what parts of Tim Clemente's interview gave you pause? Well, to begin with, I had never really considered the fact that Jesse says that he got sick and threw up, and that was a good point by Tim, and there's no denying that. You know, We always talk about sensory memories and emotional memories, and to be honest, like I said, we've been on the road. I haven't had a chance to go back and review because I want to see, make sure there was no suggestion there. I'm guessing there's not because Tim picked up on it. And see if he's describing any feelings. You know, is, is he saying I left and I was just feeling terrible and I felt sick to my stomach and I threw up? That that holds a lot of weight. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was there, but it definitely is something to consider. Or is he saying, uh, you know, because you know what happens in a movie when somebody sees something gross? Right, they throw up. Right. So it's not to just say, you know, I, I went and I threw up. You know, that's easily could be just it's trying. Remember, he has the the grip on reality of a six or seven or eight year old if this is a false confession he's trying to craft a narrative in his mind then he's drawing on his life experiences to craft that narrative you know and so that could come from movies he could have seen something else and and got sick before so i want to really dig into that and and see how that came about and again listen for if he he described emotions and feelings that led to the puke or was it you know i just i I left and then i threw up because you know i couldn't you know i I don't know i don't remember exactly how we put it but that is something that certainly if nothing else to say that i had never really considered that and then also i want to go back through really i want to go back through everything i think what i'm going to do is go through now that i've heard it and analyzed it that way go through the transcript and I want to I map out every point of evidence that came out in the interview and then dissect who did it come from and what exactly did Jesse say? Because I want to see if there's more to this that I missed. And then again, the fact that he said they may be trying to get him to repeat something he said in the pre-interview, uh, that certainly gives me pause. Um, it's something that, like I said, I, I may be considered, but not enough. And so now I want to look back and see, is that what was going on there? Because that, he's right, that does change things a little bit. So with, with that being said, plan on us digging deeper into Jesse Miss Kelly's interview. As I said in the beginning of the show today, uh, Sunday's episode is going to be the Live at CrimeCon episode that we recorded at CrimeCon. It's a Q&A. Uh, it's about an hour long about, you know, everything from season one to season five. A lot of questions there. And again, the reason for that is we, had an, we knew we were going to have a short week, so we had an episode prepared. Tim's interview changed everything, and we just don't have the time this week to really dig in enough to properly present our next episode. So, And we have this one in the can, and we wanted to make sure you guys heard it anyway. So Sunday you'll hear live at CrimeCon, and then next Sunday we're going to dig deeper into Jesse Miss Kelly, both his other statements, uh, other witnesses... He will even talk about his alibi as we go on. For It'll probably take us a couple more weeks to get through with Jesse and see what we can sort out because at this point, I don't think it's prudent to say that, well, we can rule Jesse out because that was clearly a false confession because we had an expert say that maybe it wasn't. justice is a production of nbi studios michael bussing is your executive producer and all music for the show was created and composed by put in a want to thank amanda meyer of willow photo and designs for designing and creating our friday follow-up logo and a special thanks to katie ross of created for designing creating managing and maintaining our website and also a big thank you to our transcription team sarah mueller anna dindorf britta bliss and stephanie mcconnell and as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.